You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 135. On today's show, we talk about a Roman basilica, a mummified freed Greek slave, and an English abbey. Let's dig a little deeper, but not too deep into the abbey. All right, welcome to the show, everybody. How's it going? Pretty good. Yeah. We escaped the smoke and the heat somehow. Yes. (laughs) In the latter part of the summer of 2021 here. And we are in northwestern Washington state, actually in the town that I grew up in, which is weird. So, but it's pretty much the same town and yet totally crowded with people as that (laughs) happens. So I love hearing your stories from like the 90s, though. (laughs) Like we drove past this bowling alley yesterday that literally looks like it's from 1993. And you're talking about how you left a like point and shoot camera from 1993 with film in it, with film and pictures on it there. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it was just funny thinking that like you could go in and maybe it's still in there lost and found. (laughs) I mean, this town still only has one light downtown because there's only like one intersection. (laughs) But and there's a couple lights later on. But did I tell you about the late 80s breakdancing competition that I was in? Oh, oh dear, no. Where they closed down the whole town and it was in that intersection. (laughs) Parachute pants and all. That's so 80s. I love it. (laughs) I don't think I did well. I can't imagine you did. No offense. Love you to death, but... Mm. Hmm. You know what else didn't do well? This 2,000-year-old basilica in, in Israel. Oh, the transition. I know. So anyway, so we are going to cover first here a 2,000-year-old basilica unearthed in Ashkelon. And Ashkelon is a city in Israel. Uh-huh. So this is a Roman basilica. And basilica, it's an interesting word. It, it's... I mean, it kind of looks like an amphitheater, but it was a building. and Kind of like a public use sort of yeah, building, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but it was uncovered and it was actually cool. It was uncovered as part of a, essentially what we would call a CRM project. And I, I love those kind because I'm still a firm believer that most archaeology is found because of CRM. And that's actually true. Yep. People just don't want to admit it. But it was for the development of a national park in Israel, which is also pretty cool. The Tel Ashkelon National Park. So that's, that's pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This was a structure, and like Rachel said, it was a public building uh, divided into three sections, a main hall and two side, kind of side wings to that hall. The main hall was surrounded by up to 13 meter high marble columns. I mean, that is a lot of meters. Yeah, that is, that's intense. But the Romans, being as elaborate and ornate of a people that they were, it actually makes sense that they would spend the time and money on columns that large on a building that was probably just for public use. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and speaking of ornate, uh, those columns were decorated with uh, elaborate capitals. Capitals are the things at the top of the column. Uh-huh. Uh, featuring plant motifs and sometimes animals. An eagle, in one case, was seen, uh, which is one of these symbols of Rome, which... I always forget how close our democracy is to Roman democracy, like how much it was modeled on there, even down to the eagle. So, yeah, yeah. even though the eagles, I mean, it's cool and all, but it's basically a scavenger. I know eagles are actually like kind (laughs) of like super gross birds. Yeah. This coming from somebody who actually doesn't like birds at all. I think that they're probably out to like get us. I'm pretty sure. We, We make out animals as symbols to be... Something they're very much not. This is kind of an aside, but it it goes back to human nature of treating animals because you always see animal motifs and yeah. things like that on yeah. stuff like this because we venerate the the look of the animal, not necessarily the behavior of the animal. Right. Sometimes, like with a lion, it is majestic and it also is like dominant. I get that for Africa, but I was just thinking. I saw a Facebook post from somebody the other day who let this butterfly flew into the window of the car or something and was sitting on their child's nose and just like what? sitting there, <laughs> like flapping its wings. And they're like, "That's super cool! Oh, look how cute it is!" Because it was a beautiful butterfly. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but I will never forget seeing on a project we were on in Virginia the monarch butterflies just like mowing down on cow poop. Because they're basically worms with wings. They are insects. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I know. Not it might look graceful or act graceful or look imposing and scary and dominant, like you said, but they're still animals. It's it's an interesting thing that humans do by idolizing certain certain ones. Yeah, that butterfly wasn't out like decorating flowers and being dainty. (laughs) No, it was eating poop somewhere before it landed on your nose. So let's just keep that in perspective. Enjoy that. (laughs) Let's maybe not let it land on our face. Maybe our hand and then wash it. But I don't know. So. Oh, man. Well, now that we've torn down human adoration for animals, let's move on. That's right. Wash your hands, people. All right. So. Anyway, one of the interesting things about this was it was first discovered in the 1920s by a man named John Garstang, who then covered it back up because that's kind of what you do uh, if you're coming back for another field season or whatever. It's pretty common in archaeology to rebury the excavation. Now, I don't know because we don't have the original notes and all that if they intended to come back or if it was more of a preservation measure, like we don't want people to find this. So we're kind of done with it. But Israel's not ready to do anything with it because Israel doesn't exist. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't Israel until like the 50s, right? Yeah, something like so, that. So, well, it wasn't like a recognized state. I don't know. There's a history of it. But anyway, so he covered it back up and I don't think it was lost. They have his notes. Right. I think they just finally got around to it in yeah. the development of this national park. It makes sense. We do that today still, yeah. you know, like we don't, we don't excavate something and then just like walk away and leave it open for anybody to see or touch no. or mess with or whatever. You, you fill it back in, but you know, it's still there. So... And in this case, if it was just a exploratory survey that mm-hmm. uncovered it, then it would definitely make sense to just cover it back up, keep it preserved, and let everybody know it's there. Yeah, I'm thinking of this field school that happens up in Oregon. I'm, I'm friends with, on Facebook, some of the people that run it. So I see it every year, and it's a place mm-hmm. that they go back to consistently. And every year, I mean, not, not every year do they do this, but if they're not done with an area... They do spend the last couple days of the project literally filling it in and and making sure it's all good. And sometimes you'll put down tarps on the excavated surface and then you'll fill it in with dirt. So you kind of like know where you stopped. Yeah. Because 
I mean, even over the course of a, a season, it could be, you know, mildly compacted again and it could be difficult to find, find where you stopped. Yeah. yeah. So you not only fill it in, like Rachel said, for just preservation and, and keeping people from finding it, but also in the case of the Great Basin, from animals from falling in. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't want like a, a range cow to fall in there and then now you've got a cow carcass to deal with next year. Yeah, definitely. Depending on yeah. how deep it is, you, you have to protect the surrounding area, whether right. it's people, animals or whatever. Always makes me wonder how many cows are at the bottom of those open mine shafts we see in Nevada. Oh, I mean, probably a fair bit. Yeah. It, I don't know when they put the barbed wire up around them, but yeah, it hasn't been that Not long. Soon enough. No, <laughs> and there's a lot that don't have it too. Yeah. Yeah. So. Mr. Garstang, our doctor, I don't know who he is. They didn't really say. So he calculated the dimensions of the building back in the 20s and noted that the marble was actually imported from Asia Minor. And that was kind of a key thing because that allowed him to estimate that the building was constructed in the time of King Herod the Great in the second half of the first century BC. Because I guess that was a time when they were doing that type of marble Bringing importing. Kind of, marble in, right? kind of the other cool thing here is one of the archaeologists on the project, Bar Nathan, said that the original structure was from Herod's time, sure, with the marble and all that, but the grandiose elements and some of the other marbles and the columns, they call it like the the motifs and structures and sometimes they call them marbles Mm, even though a lot of the rest of it was made out of marble and limestone but anyway a lot of that was built later around the second and third century ce during the time and style of emperor septimus severus and i know what house he was in (laughs) so were there snakes (laughs) i think they were yeah (laughs) so uh, but that makes sense i mean that's something that we do today you take an older building that is maybe not as elaborate as you would like it to be and you Mm -hmm. spruce it up right so sounds like that's what he did and you know king herod was partially known he was known for lots of things but he was partially known for extensive construction and restoration works around the land that he was king of Mm -hmm. uh, including the complete rebuilding uh, of the temple of jerusalem and this is again over a thousand years ago uh, two thousand years ago right right it makes me wonder a good series i think would be like early preservation efforts We always Mm. talk about preservation in the United States anyway, kind of starting with the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966. Not Mm -hmm. that people didn't want to preserve old buildings. That's why we still have them. But there wasn't an official like state sanctioned by state. I mean, federal sanctioned mandate to preserve things Mm -hmm. using certain criteria before 1966. I mean, there there have been other smaller like things that didn't just didn't have that sweeping scope. right? Right, Right. It was the Antiquities Act and some other things. But. I just wonder, you you don't think of people, at least I don't think of people doing that, like, back in, uh, quote, ancient times. You know what I mean? No. Like, I feel like they just torqued stuff down or yeah. they used it for 900 years. Yeah. And then tore it down. Right. You know? There wasn't the same uh, veneration, maybe, for yeah. old structures and... History. History, yeah, that yeah. we have now. It, but that's not true, though, because there was, because you can see, like, like the founding of America, the founding fathers, they really looked back on Roman democracy when establishing the American democracy. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. But I don't think they cared so much about preserving (laughs) old buildings and stuff. You know, it was just a different mindset and still cared about history, but they just cared about it in a different way. Maybe. Right. I just don't think that they had the infrastructure uh, to deal with, some of that stuff, because they yeah. had a lot of people in some of those old cities, and they just had to pave way for yeah. progress. That's, you know what I mean? That's true. Yeah. Looking at the history of it. And and how many people 
really even knew the history because it's not like they could just go search online or, right. you know, the, sure, there were archives. The Romans wrote everything down, but very few people had access to that. Right. That's so, very true. Yeah. Anyway, when Herod ruled, Ashkelon was a free city and a trade port, and later it became a Roman city that probably did some of the same functions. Mm-hmm. It would still be a port, more than likely. Yeah. Uh, but during the Roman times, the building wasn't religious, but more public. So it started out as a, a more religious place, and then it became a more public place during the Roman times, mm-hmm. used for commerce, court cases, and other civic functions. But I thought one of the interesting things was, and I, I again, this wasn't elaborated on in the article, but it says in later centuries, Christian churches would be inspired by this uh, the basilica architectural structure mm-hmm. with like the the altar in the centerpiece and yeah. then the side wings. Right. You know, you can see that in cathedrals and yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if they're saying this particular building was inspired. Was it the inspiration for later Christian churches, but more the, the basilica layout? Yeah, the style. I of think that's what they're saying. Yeah, I yeah. think that's probably what they're saying. So, but who knows? It's Israel. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of where Christianity started, right? Supposedly. <laughs> Depending on who you believe in. Like, yeah. 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 So anyway, the building was destroyed in 363 CE by an earthquake. And some of the remains were used centuries later. This is, I think, is kind of cool uh, in the 8th through 12th centuries to build industrial installations locally. So they can see some of the... Uh, I guess they can probably tie some of the the building blocks of this, and I don't know if maybe there's written documentation of it, but they can at least tie some of the building blocks of this to other buildings. To other structures, yeah. But the crazy thing is, is it says 8th to 12th century. I mean, that's like 500 years this thing laid in ruin. Yeah. You know, our country isn't even half that old. I mean, it is a little more. <laughs> right. And I'm like, man, 500 years, the <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the, what, what was happening to it before then? Right. Well, uh, the other interesting thing is that Really, 500-year-old stones were still in good enough shape to build other buildings? I I don't think we're going to use material from a 500-year-old building in this country, but... Not if it's like concrete, but (laughs) 500-year-old rock, if I'm going to be technical, is probably already like a billion years old. Well, true, true. (laughs) So what's another 500 years among friends? (laughs) Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking of like that archaeological site picture. In fact, the picture of this one where you've got the like crumbling corners of the stones... It's just interesting to think about how how they would have been reused. But I guess that's a totally different topic. So, yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. So let's go from Romans to Greeks in Rome. Well, not Rome, but near Rome. How about that? Let's so, do it. Yeah, and mummies. So we're going to kind of bring pseudo-Egyptian elements and the Greeks into a Roman city. Let's do that on the other side of the break. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com and use the code T-A-S. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to episode 135 of the Archaeology Show. And as promised... We're headed over to, we're, we're kind of staying with the Romans, but only partially. Uh, we're going to Pompeii, which was, of course, you know, a Roman, Roman city. Time. Yeah. But Pompeii was a very cosmopolitan, like, international city. It was. Yeah. I, I get the feeling because of where it was located, just like, you know, it was away from, it was way south of Rome, south of Naples, and I'm not yeah. sure how old Naples is. I don't know if it even existed then. but uh, It did in some format, but I think yeah. Pompeii was almost a bigger center of yeah. commerce and stuff in that area. It just seemed like a place that people visited a lot yeah. from all over the place. Yeah. And one of the example of that is a recent skeleton that was found and we know a lot about this dude, which is kind of cool about Roman stuff. If you can find inscriptions or anything like that, there's lots of good records. Yeah. So anyway, real quick, if in case you didn't know, Pompeii was destroyed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 CE and it's a pretty cool place if you ever have a chance to go. I've been twice now and mm-hmm. we went just like five years ago. Yeah. It's still amazing every time you go. It is. It's a very, very cool, such a ghostly preserved place. Mm-hmm. It's really neat. You feel like you're stepping back in time. So Yeah. Very cool. So during this time in Roman times, uh, most adults were cremated after they die. Yeah. So we don't have a lot of remains. Now, of course, Pompeii is a little different because we have people who are captured in the eruption. This guy yeah. was not. Yeah, they're not. This guy was already dead. Right. We don't have remains from Pompeii. We have outlines of remains, yes. basically. Well, we have some remains, there's depending some. I guess on where they were. Yeah, yeah. there's some. But. Yeah. But most, most of the time, like if somebody dies naturally and not not from a volcano mm-hmm. they're usually cremated mm-hmm. so probably has to do with again saving space like we mentioned and probably just you know bodies are gross and they cause other diseases and animals and things to come by yeah you know, well even burying, if you bury them but burying bodies it was sort of a christian thing so you don't see a whole lot mm, of yeah like body burials the way we think of it until christianity really took hold in you know, the later part of the yeah. first millennia, basically. So so what they found in this tomb, this like stone tomb, was a Greek skeleton. I'll get to how we know he was Greek here in a minute. But a Greek skeleton found well-preserved uh, mm-hmm. inside of the tomb. And the skull had tufts of white hair and part of an ear on it. That is some preservation yeah. right there. Now, did the volcano help with preservation here? Or is it just the tomb was sealed so well? well? I think the tomb was just sealed so well because uh, I don't think we know exactly when this... Well, we do know when this guy died because uh, we know when he lived, but that's okay. actually not mentioned in this particular article Okay, because we know a lot about him. We'll get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. So if we could dive into this a little farther, yeah. we would probably know exactly when he died. Yeah. Right? So the inscription on the tomb suggested, uh, they're going with it though, that the owner... Because you have to assume that the person in there 
is, is the person this, on the inscription. Yeah. I mean, there's, you can't really do much else with that. Yeah. But it was a freed slave named Marcus Venerius Secundo. He helped organize performances in, uh, in Greek in Pompeii. Mm-hmm. So he would... Uh, just have Greek speaking performances. And uh, the kind of the interesting thing about this is uh, they probably already knew this because, you know, Greece and Rome were you know, pretty closely tied together. Mm-hmm. But uh, th- they say this is the first actual evidence that Greek was used alongside Latin as a speaking language there. Right. I, and I'm sure, like we said, people come in speaking their own languages. But as far as like an official, I don't know about official language, but at least another language that is well represented, mm-hmm. this would have been one clue to that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they had like Greek town or anything like that, but uh, <laughs> right. or if people who spoke Latin would just come by and be like, you know, well, I speak Greek, too. Let's go check it out. Yeah. Let's go f- figure it out. Yeah, it is. I would love to know a little bit more about like the daily life and like what people knew and what they didn't know and, mm-hmm. and how that played together. Because obviously all we know is modern cities. So learning about the way different cultures interacted in an ancient city is super interesting. I, I wish yeah. we knew more and this might help us you know, like learn more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this is also again, one more piece of evidence amongst many pieces of evidence. Like we just mentioned at the beginning that Pompeii had a lively and open cultural climate. Mm-hmm. And this is just, again, one more piece of evidence in support of that. Yep. Also, another thing that's kind of cool is the tomb, they can see traces of paint on the outside walls, mm. and they it looks like it was painted with images of green plants on a blue background, so it would have been a mm. nice, tranquil little place. It's interesting to me that it's like in Pompeii. Like, why... If you're going to paint green image on a blue background, that seems like something we would do now because you can't get out of the city. Like, just yeah. go out of the city and <laughs> make a cemetery or something. Yeah. Like why, why in Pompeii? There must have been a reason for that. Yeah, this whole thing is super interesting. I, I find that I after reading the article, I kind of have more questions. I want to deep dive more. So mm-hmm. this is a 15 minute look at this article <laughs> and this place and what happened here. So yeah. you'll have to forgive us for not knowing every single thing. But in this case, I do have so many more questions because I'm like, OK, number one, this guy was a freed slave. Like, how did that come about? <laughs> well, what was that? Now they might not know. But like, the, that's my first question. Yeah. And then to have a tomb like this where he's well-preserved and there's all kinds of inscriptions and it sounds like there were some funerary urns and, and with the blue, with blue glass on them and like various things that show that this guy had some kind of stature in this society. Mm -hmm. So he was a freed slave who became prosperous and now has this really fancy tomb. So like, I just, I want more. I want to know more about how he got from point A to point B. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, it says that he was in his sixties when he died Uh huh. and he was a slave at the temple of Venus, uh, before his release. Uh huh. So it doesn't, it doesn't really say like the, how terms, that the terms of that release and how that happened. Yeah. But after which he joined the priesthood of the Imperial cult. It was called dedicated to glorifying the memory of the Roman emperor Augustus who ruled from 27 BC to AD 14. So if he was in his sixties when he died, he would have been a child when Augustus's rule ended. Yeah. So, well then I guess my final question about this that I would love to know more about is if the volcano did contribute to sort of preservation of the yeah. tomb because it seems like probably he died not too long before Pompeii erupted and maybe the ashes, you know, coming down and settling on not only the to the tomb itself, but the city mm-hmm. and the area and everything helped to create this amazing preservation that we have here. Well, and I'm curious again about the 
mummification because was yeah. that intentional? Was that an accident? Was right. that was that just because the relatively because it's a humid place over there, yeah. so that's not a very good friend of preservation, right? But if he was sealed up inside this deep rock tomb, and the seal was really good. It could have been super dry in there mm-hmm. and uh, just helped to preserve him. Or was the partial mummification intentional? Yeah. You know, he was in the priesthood. He was in religious, you know, studies and, and profession, things like that. So maybe mummification and preservation was uh, more practiced by them. Mm-hmm. Who knows? So. And it sounds like they don't know yet whether this mummification was intentional or not. Mm-hmm. So needs to be some more study and probably more... More papers written yeah. and more research done to find out. Well, speaking of religious things that I don't know a whole lot about, let's talk about an old abbey, a medieval abbey in England on the other side of the break. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to The Archaeology Show, episode 135. And this is our third and final segment. And we are talking about... Uh, kind of another CRM project. I kind of wrote that in the notes, but after I looked at it a little farther, I'm not really sure, but we'll talk about that in a minute. But mm-hmm. this is an archaeological dig at the Museum Gardens in York, England, and they revealed lost buildings that were once part of a medieval St. Mary's Abbey. Oh, cool. So I thought it was CRM because I heard development and I was like, it was basically done by uh, the York Archaeological Trust. And I was like, oh, this is definitely CRM. But I think they're just... I mean, it kind of is, but they're just doing like local development at the gardens. Yeah, right? they're doing something in this area, and they had to they had to dig it up. They they already knew that something was here, right? right? They have really good records going back, and they knew something was there. Yep, and they wanted to upgrade. It sounds like it was a major upgrade of the flood embankment area. Yeah. So yeah. they knew they had stuff there. They knew they needed to excavate. So right, whether it came about because of CRM or. Or not? I think we would call it CRM, especially yeah. when you talk about like flood uh, flood projects and stuff like that. Even if it's just yeah for their own 
business, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say the same because it's not yeah. like it was a, a professor leading a group of students right. out there. You right. know, it was this York Archaeological Trust. Yep. I bet they had a lot of volunteers, if I had to guess, just knowing how yeah. like British archaeology tends to work. Yeah. So many people are so interested in it that I think they have like tons of volunteers for well, lots of things. <laughs> yeah, and their volunteers are more qualified than most archaeologists in this country because they've all watched Time Team for like the last 25 years. <laughs> that and they all live in houses that are like 400 years old. Yeah, so they exactly. immediately know what old architecture looks like. Yeah, and if you dig a garden in your backyard, you basically need to be an archaeologist. <laughs> right. So, Sorry, British yeah, people. Just We're to, generalizing. I know. Just to plant your flowers, you got to get through the Roman layer. So. <laughs> We're generalizing because we're jealous. That's true. Yeah, I want to be there. <laughs> yeah. All right. So anyway, as we said, currently this is the Museum Gardens in York City Center. Uh, historically, it was the grounds and precincts of St. Mary's Abbey. So what they're hoping to find, what they were hoping to find, was traces of the medieval abbey buildings. Uh, a building called the Hospitium, which I don't know what that is. I would. I don't know if it. If I'm hospital related. Yeah. Right. Maybe? Like yeah. hospitality. It's got to be the same root word, right? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that's the only thing intact today. So, an interesting thing. There's been no excavations until now because there's been no development. They specifically right. said that in the article, and they say that, and they say this a little later in the article that uh, the project manager Ben Reeves actually said that they don't disturb anything unless they have to. So they won't be going right. deeper than is necessary for construction. Right. Right. So they're going as deep as they have to to build this flood retention thing, and then that's it. Even though they might be curious as to what's below it, mm-hmm. they're just not going to do it. Well, yeah. I mean, archaeology is. It's destructive by yeah. nature, right? And yeah. but the best thing you can do for it is leave it intact and not yeah. not destroy it. So that's why the development of non-destructive techniques like ground penetrating radar yeah. and things like that, the stuff we talk about so on the Archaeotech cool. podcast, mm-hmm. that is why it's so 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 important. You know, I always think of some Star Trek Next Generation episode because Picard was like an amateur, you know, pot hunter. Uh, <laughs> he called himself an amateur archaeologist because he just yeah. loved that kind of stuff. But, you know, he's definitely a pot hunter because he's got yeah. definite artifacts from different civilizations. He's very focused yeah. on the things of the past. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he likes the history, but he's like taking stuff. Yeah. So definitely. they have replicators. Come on, Picard. Anyway. <laughs> it's not the I, same. I know. I remember some episode where they basically used the sensors of the ship to look into the ground and see some stuff. Excuse me the sensors sensors yeah you have to say sensors yeah (laughs) go on (laughs) yeah wait i have to put my leg on the table to say that yeah (laughs) i hope you know what we're talking about anyway so they use some sensors from the ship to look into the ground and actually see structures and things because they have those kind of sensors now that's fiction but not too far from reality because Uh we have plenty of particles that will interact with certain types of matter and not other types of matter and really just harnessing that ability and then essentially just like ground penetrating radar works it works based off reflections so Mm -hmm. you send out a whole bunch of pulses and when those pulses come back the intensity and direction with which they come back allows you to map what's under the surface Mm -hmm. problem is it's just not great resolution right you know you just you can only do so much with it right so if you could get like a you know, LIDAR kind of does the same thing, but it has no obstructions. Like it's looking, it's going through vegetation and stuff, but that's easy. Yeah. If you could have a LIDAR quality, image quality, and even LIDAR is not great, but if you could have that kind of quality underground, man, and I just, I know we'll get there. Yep. It's just when, and when that happens, actual archaeological excavation is going to grind to a halt and only be 
necessary to for clear projects. It out of the way. Yeah, yeah, where you're definitely going to dig through it. So, but there won't be any need to like disturb graves and stuff like that in the future, unless they're in the way. Yeah, of unless we absolutely building. have to. Yeah, 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 we'll know they're there and what they look like. Yep. So, yeah. Anyway, this project, even if it's tangentially CRM, just again, this is the second of three articles that we're talking about today that have a basis in some sort of preservation that is mandated, mm-hmm. right? Or or done because of development in some way, right, right? Right, yep. So, I mean, CRM is just showing its importance all over the place. Interesting, like we were saying with the, you know, you can't drop a trowel in the backyard in your backyard without finding something. Mm-hmm. The topsoil, and topsoil is usually like the top like disturbed layer that we usually dig through here in the United States. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe not some portions of the East Coast where we have some more history, but topsoil topsoil also known as the plow zone in some places. It's typically like, ah, we just need to skip that. But no, they had 19th century pottery right. and other 19th century artifacts and stuff from when the Yorkshire Philosophical Society first created the botanical botanical garden. Mm-hmm. So Stuff all over the place. The 19th century stuff was Victorian in nature because that was the time period. It was in the 1830s when they built the gardens. Mm -hmm. But below that was rubble that includes limestone roofs and floor tile pieces. And these could be from the demolition of several buildings after the dissolution of the monasteries in 1530. Um, The thing they don't know is when the monastery was basically dissolved... How long were the buildings up? Right. Did anybody do think anything with them? Did they just remain vacant? I highly doubt it. I mean, maybe maybe at first, but man, somebody move into there. Yeah, but, uh, right. Like they don't know between 1530 and 1830, a period of 300 years when the gardens began to be constructed, like what happened to the buildings? Right, right. Which is interesting to me in a place like York where we have really good documentation of pretty much everything. I wonder if it was sort of a reuse of building materials kind of situation they might have been you know scavenged to build something else yeah and what they're finding now is just what was not taken maybe i don't know possible yeah they they also were talking about the hospitium which by the way is it says it later in the article it's a lodging house for lay guests of the monastery which historians believe may have also acted as a warehouse for goods that were coming through the the river gate so okay but they were wondering if that was left on purpose, like there was a purpose for that building. So they left it there in its current format. And that's why we still have it today. And that's possible. Like maybe it, it was turned into a hotel or something, you know, that just lodging of some sort. lodging of some yeah. sort. Yeah. And the rest of the buildings were not necessary and they were taken down. It's just it's to probably take an a, Airbnb. To, <laughs> right. The only thing that bothers me about that is that taking a building down is like a lot of work. So yeah. why do it if you don't have to? Maybe they crumbled away in time. Who knows? Who knows? For some reason, I was thinking somebody could have used it as like their their hideout or something like that because it's like this big stone building that people don't want to go in. You know, like <laughs> yeah. a Robin Hood kind of guy. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and then when I just said Airbnb, it made me think like, what do what do like mastermind criminals do with their their different hideouts around the world when they're not using them? They oh, they posted on Airbnb. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, that's staying in. No, that's right. real bad. <laughs> you didn't even say layer right. Layer B and B. That's what I said. All right. Anyway, so bad. the uh, the hospitium not only stayed standing but was renovated in the 1830s. Yes. So, like you said, using, using it for something it. else yeah. probably. Yeah. So, 
they know that buildings were demolished in the 19th century, of course, because they're no longer there. Mm-hmm. And well, uh, up to the 19th up century. Up to the 19th yeah. century, yeah. And, of course, this being an abbey, there could be remains, like burial remains there. Oh, yeah. Definitely yeah. Uh, I don't know if they know exactly where like a cemetery would be or where things like that are. Mm-hmm. Um, or if there's maybe just some... I don't know, potential tombs laying around. It's an abbey. Somebody important could have just been buried there. Yeah, and they didn't really get into the whole like geography of the, the yeah, site itself. The so there, there could be like a cemetery section right. somewhere else. But with an old area like this, sometimes what they used to use as a cemetery, they stop using it mm-hmm. and then it gets overgrown and then it yeah. gets lost to the records. And then all of a sudden you're digging a garden and you hit a body and don't know it. So yeah. like that's definitely a possibility too. Right. So... Anyway, whatever they do find, they intend to rebury right there. Yeah. They're not going to put them in a museum or something. It's an abbey. They're respecting that. Yeah. And going to rebury everything. Very cool. All right. Well, that is pretty much it. I wanted to let you guys know some things we got coming up here. We've got a... Uh, if we can get it done, hopefully, um, I'm, we're traveling around, as we said. So one of our former site supervisors that we worked with up here in Washington, we might be recording with him on a, and if we don't record with him, he gave me the publication they put together on an excavation that Rachel and I worked on like 12, 12 years, years ago, now, ago? 12 yeah. or 13 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> it was like 2009 or so, give or take. Yep. And it was a really cool site from a people called the Olcott and they're well represented in that area. And we have the publication that they finally, I mean, they did the site report years ago, yep. but they finally had something published at Utah University Press. And if we don't get to talk to uh, our former site supervisor, we'll bring him on um, hopefully next week. But uh, we're at least going to talk about the book. Yeah, for so sure. So we'll, we'll we'll take a look at it and talk about it because it's a pretty cool, a pretty cool site that we worked on. It is neat. That, yeah, it's neat to have that personal connection to yeah. have actually worked on it. Yeah, and we've got another timelines episode coming up. I know mm-hmm. we wanted to make this a, a more regular series, but there, you know, there's some research to put those together. Mm-hmm. And this one is going to be based on uh, our trip to Philadelphia, and it's going to be based around the signing of the Declaration of Independence and what has happened. What, what was happening in different parts of the world, two other parts of the world more specifically, mm-hmm. during that time. So that's what we've got coming up on the Archaeology Show. And hope you guys stick around. And we've got a producer and possibly another one coming on. So we may even start in a few months making these a little more frequent and doing some more interviews and other stuff. So we'll see. We're keeping it, keeping it uh, flexible. So anyway, thanks. We'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Oh.